Hi, it's Delegate Mike McKay, District 1C, serving Allegheny and Washington counties. You're listening to my go-to source for news and insight on Maryland policy and politics, the Conduit Street Podcast. And welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, another episode that we are recording after dark. I like the format. I think it's been successful. And the idea here is we're going to talk about some stuff going on here in Annapolis. And we don't get to do this right now because of COVID, but normally we could sit around a table and, you know, shoot the breeze, see what's going on. And we're going to do that tonight with a couple of issues. Yeah, so so I'm not quite as tuned up as some of our previous After Dark episodes, but nonetheless, it is in fact dark as we're getting to it this evening. But uh, I don't know; it's been a busy busy week. There's a lot of stuff happening, and uh, I don't know. It feels like things are in in genuine full swing. There's bills coming to the floor, and lots of voting sessions, and you know, long hearings and so forth. So it's it's feeling like the real deal. So yeah, let's get into some stuff. Yeah, definitely busy around town. And today we're going to talk about some of the big news last week, a bunch of veto overrides. And then we're going to get into a little bit of wonkiness because we have to and we haven't in a while. We'll talk about what happens when a when a budget gets rebased. So, Michael, let's start with veto overrides. Of course, if you have been listening to this podcast for, I don't know, the last year or so, you knew that Kerwin, the veto would be overridden, right? We're talking about the blueprint for Maryland's future. We've talked a lot about the Kerwin Commission. And Michael, it's in the news because that happened last week. Let's walk through a little bit what this means now, now that the General Assembly has overrode the veto. Yeah, maybe to to take one step back from there, sort of remember the end of the 2020 legislative session was weird in a lot of ways, right? The legislature basically adjourned early and you know they they wrapped up the important stuff and basically got out of town ahead of schedule that hasn't mm-hmm. happened for i forgot how long ago how long it was but you know years and years and years prior um, to the civil it, war right right so they 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 left a long list of legislative proposals you know sitting on the governor's desk for him to either sign or veto and the governor has the ability to veto bills and say, I disagree with this policy or I don't like something about it. So I say no. Then the legislature has you know, their checks and balances system back and forth. The legislature can override the veto and have those bills become law, notwithstanding the objection of the governor. So that's the back and forth. If, if you're an inside baseball type, you tend to look at the vote counts on bills that get to the governor and you notice, hey, if this is a controversial issue, are there enough votes there to override the veto if all the yes votes stick with it? And so we knew that quite a lot of things that the governor ended up vetoing. He he issued, as I recall, a pretty substantial like three or four waves of vetoes back in the spring, right. including a number of bills where he said, looks like we're heading into a, a pandemic. It'll probably have a fiscal component. We got a lot of uncertainty. I'm not ready to put my name on bills that are, that are gonna have fiscal consequences. So 
in that spirit, I think he wrote one big veto letter that 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 basically accompanied a number of different bills. But the the biggest and and most comprehensive among them was the Kerwin Education Spending Plan. This big ten year ambitious, aggressive but costly vision for where we're going to go next with with school programs. So so that's sort of the setup that brought us to the bill got vetoed by the governor. What would the legislature do? Um, and we've been saying for a long time, we felt comfortable saying the override of the veto seemed very likely, right? Right, absolutely. So the governor, he vetoed 37 bills, as you said. And yeah, this is the most consequential. Michael, we talked a little bit before about, well, maybe because of a trigger provision that was added to the bill, that might make it a little easier for the governor to jump on board. That wasn't the case. And now we know that the the, the veto was overridden. So I want to get into a little bit just sort of what happens now, right? The The bill is going to be implemented behind schedule. So does that mean that all these programs get delayed, you know, by the same time? I mean, what goes into effect now? How do things work once the once a bill is overridden? When does the bill generally go into law? Right. So it's first of all, this is a little bit complicated because this bill, the way it was drafted, was a big long term exercise. Right. You and I spent a lot of time sitting in all the the work group meetings and and all these different sessions of the commission that ended up turning into this bill and all the bill hearings and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, the, But the plan had always been for a pretty lengthy phase-in of effectively 10 years to get to an end goal of fully funding a whole, whole number of new visions for, you know, what are we going to do for our school children in this category and what are we going to do for students with special needs and what are we going to mm-hmm. do for areas where there's high density of students who are in poverty there are, there are a number of different components of the bill that part of it was going to take place in fiscal 2023 and then this other thing happens in fiscal 2025 and other things are later a lot of things are phased in and so forth so the bill was always hard to understand anyway because mm-hmm. it had a lengthy rollout written into the bill. So it's a little different from something like, oh, I don't know, let's pass a bill to change the speed limit from 65 to 75. Well, when's that going to take place? Well, you know, on this date written in the bill, then the veto, uh, that, that sort of thing would be a little more e- easy to understand. Like, as of this date, the new thing is law. Here, a little more complicated. So the short version in the Constitution is if the legislature overrides the governor's veto, that bill becomes law 30 days after the override. So mm-hmm. that happened you know, a week or so ago. Was it was it Monday? I'm, I'm, I'm losing track of what day of the week any, any day is now. But I think it was late in the week when both when the, both the Senate and the House had over, overrode the veto. Yeah, so maybe on Friday the 12th. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so 30 days from the second chamber voting to override the veto is when the bill technically takes effect. But in practice, if you're if you're one of the you know the the bean counters in county government, or you work in the finance office at a school system, or that that sort of thing, the the important takeaway is that the elements in the bill that say this part takes effect for fiscal 2023, this part takes effect on July 1 of 2025 or whatever, all those dates stay in place. So even though 
the bill didn't take effect back in like the originally planned to take effect probably in October or July one of last year, um, it doesn't matter. The references don't sort of slide back because the bill wasn't signed in or wasn't signed into law. It went through this different process. None of the references in the bill changed. So basically all the pieces of paper that we had back in April, you know, in March and April of 2020 are still intact. It's just we're looking at them anew because now the bill's finally made it through that process. Big takeaway, don't expect any major delays in the implementation of the bill's programs or funding requirements. And Michael, this is $4 billion in annual state and county spending above where we are now. That's by 2030 when the bill is fully phased in. But technical changes still might be necessary, Michael, right? I mean, the bill is going to be implemented on schedule. We may need some technical changes, and those would likely come in amendments to another bill. Is that right? So there may be some technical things, but we shouldn't expect any sort of delay in the funding or programs being implemented. Yeah, I think at, at one point, I think we probably talked on this podcast about, gee, there's a lot of fiscal uncertainty. It was, you remember back on the 1st of July, 2020, the, the governor goes to the his board of public works and says, I think I need to make budget cuts for the year ahead because this looks like it might be a crisis situation. And, you know, the American economy felt like it was just, you know, teetering on the brink and no one knew how bad the fiscal effects of the terrible health pandemic were going to be. Um, there was a while when people were saying, gosh, this would be a really difficult time to to really, you know, override the veto and make this long-term fiscal commitment. We don't know the status of our economy. Right. Um, I guess I guess the immediate picture has picked up since then. And we, we've, you know, you, you and I have talked about this on, on the podcast about the American economy is so hard to figure out right now how much how much of today's activity is a function of basically government support papering over an economy that just isn't functioning in proper ways. So you can walk down Main Street Annapolis or Main Street any town USA and see all the places that are temporarily closed, permanently closed, working on you know restaurants that have one window open for takeout rather than 60 patrons in the restaurant. I mean, right. we know there are big segments of the American economy that aren't functioning correctly, but nobody has a good way to measure what the underlying circumstances are. But anyway, you know, the ability to afford this year's state budget doesn't feel like it's really imperiled and the immediate future feels okay. So as a practical matter, I think the legislature felt like they could go ahead, override the veto. They've got a plan for funding this program for the next several years. So in the short term, it's, you know, the, the, the numbers do add up. The chips are there, right? Right. And the governor, actually, it's interesting, too. He included a lot of the the funding for these programs in the budget. So in his budget proposal, in his proposed budget, he included funding as if it would have gone into effect. So that's an interesting piece, too. You mentioned the state, you know, according to the state, they have enough money in the Blueprint Fund to fund Blueprint through at least 2026. And they also overrode a veto, Michael, of a bill that will also be dedicated to education. And that was the tobacco tax and sales and use tax on digital advertising. We talked a lot about that on this podcast. It's, it's a fascinating policy issue. But that is also going to be helpful to funding the state's portion of the blueprint moving forward, right? Right. And and I, I think 
probably put a pin in that because that is going to be a topic that's going to get some continued attention, probably some national attention as other states look at Maryland and say, okay, I mean, is it, is it really the case that a state can step in and try and say this kind of big online advertiser is engaging in an activity that you can apportion to your state and consider it a taxable transaction for your state that you could say, okay, we're going to apply some sort of an excise tax or a sales sales tax to it. So, I mean, this is pushing the frontier of the recent Supreme Court decision that said a, a company that does catalog business or internet business but doesn't have a physical presence in your state, if they're serving uh, customers in your state and delivering to your state, that's a sufficient nexus to, to, to apply your sales and use tax. This is sort of extending the same logic. Um, I don't know how this will happen, how this will get sorted out legally, but mm-hmm. I imagine we will see a lot of people wearing fantastic pinstripe suits, racking up big dollars on the hourly, um, doing the analysis and investigation and litigation over the Maryland tax proposal and a lot of interested parties taking a look to see whether it holds up. No doubt about that. And Michael, also connected to Kerwin, to the blueprint, was the big school construction bill, right? The Built to Learn Act. And we know that that bill was connected in a way where it would not go into effect until Kerwin went into effect. And now Kerwin will go into effect. And I guess that means that the Built to Learn Act will also go into effect as scheduled. Right. And so as as a reminder for our listeners, this was a bill that was going to dedicate a a substantial share of revenue from casino revenues, take some of that money and basically commit it as long-term proceeds to back up bonds that we talked. I I remember a now famous, I don't know, infamous, famous, I don't know. But one of our Mm -hmm. episodes, we tried to break down the idea of general obligation bonds and revenue bonds and that kind of stuff. But I think it was this this uh, plan we were talking about, sure. the state pledging casino revenues and saying, let's float bonds today, which means we get a bunch of cash. You can go out and build a bunch of school buildings, clear the deck of all the projects that are basically ready to go today, and then pay for them over the long haul using revenue bonds pledging casino dollars. This was an idea the governor floated in one form in a bill. It passed through the legislature in a somewhat different form, but it's a concept that's got wide support. Because it got pinned to the Kerwin bill to sort of make it into a package deal for people who favored one but not the other, um, we ended up having to sort of twiddle thumbs for the last 10 months and wonder, okay, is this all going to come together? Are we going to see the Kerwin bill the veto override and then that is a green light for this big school construction bill the Mm -hmm. school construction bill wasn't wasn't planning to have all those schools built already so we didn't really lose anything by this window of time but now that bill becomes law also by virtue of the kerwin override the last thing on kerwin now that the bill will become law it's always the question of a lot of these programs are great. They're designed to, to really make Maryland a leader when it comes to our schools, but the cost. And so, Michael, for counties, $600 million in required funding, but that's that's along the current tread line, right? So it could be more than that. And that's something you've talked about before, too. Yeah, it's this is a little bit in the weeds, but I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's our brand to some degree. Um, what 
when you when you take a look at county funding for schools, there's two ways to look at it. You can say, well, if you start with the assumption that counties would do the very minimum required under law, then you can make a pretty clear calculation of what that is. The reality is, though, that in, in normal circumstances, in a normal budget year, when there's growth in revenue sources because you know people are making a little more income or their property assessments go up on that three-year cycle and so forth, and lo and behold, you know county revenues are 3% better than they were a year before, typically you start saying, okay, we have a little more revenue. Where do we want to focus? What are our priorities? And in a typical county Board of Education funding is half the county budget or thereabouts, sometimes more than that. Right. Um, pretty often you say, all right, well, if we got 3% more money, let's see if we can find an extra 3 or 4% more for school spending because mm-hmm. we've got priorities over there. It's something that the citizens really care about. We care about. We want good achievement in the schools and good services for our kids. So you know, that happens all the time. So when you try and take a snapshot of what would be the effect of this bill, what do you use as a starting point? Do you say, assume the bare minimum under current law mandated funding? Or do you start with, well, let's take a look at the last several years and just assume the next several years are going to be just as gravy as those last several years. And that's basically the snapshot that everybody has seen for the county fiscal effects of the Kerwin bill are option B. It's basically, if we assume the counties were going to continue to be more generous than they had to be, how much more would they have to do above and beyond that to fund Kerwin? And that's where you get, I forgot what the final bottom line number was, um, but it could have been a great deal more because that already embeds a natural inclination to overfund uh, education and call that a zero baseline. Right. Speaking of formulas and budgets, Michael, <laughs> let's 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 leave Kerwin now. I mean, again, you can go back through our podcast episodes and you can find as much information as you can handle on Kerwin. Speaking of budgets, I was watching testimony in the Senate. You were testifying on a big bill for MAKO. And part of the testimony had to do with local health department funding. And it was a small piece, but you talked about the rebasing of the local health department funding. And I think it's interesting to get into that because it's an important policy issue and it's one that we see also in the Budget Reconciliation and Financing Act often. We'll talk a little bit about that, but talk a little bit about what you were testifying on and the concept of rebasing and and why it has such an impact on programs. It it is an interesting topic and we sort of had that, that bright moment in the Budget Taxation Committee where there sort of was, you know, the light bulb went on. A lot of people recognized what we had a couple health officers and I were speaking to this issue and it all just seemed to click. But all right, so let's walk this back a couple steps. And uh, for the, the faithful Conduit Street listeners, you may remember back in the fall before the, ele- before the November election, we had PJ Hogan on as a guest. And one, of the, and one of the things he talked with us about was the ballot question that was on the November ballot about changing Maryland's budget process. And in leading up to that, we sort of talked about, you know, Maryland's really weird. We have this one-of-a-kind budget circumstance where the lay of the land here is money only gets in the budget if the governor places it there. And on a certain level, that makes our General Assembly weak in the 
sort of direction and administration of the current year's budget. However, mm-hmm. the, the legislature does have the ability to direct what the governor shall do in future year's budgets. And they usually do so by passing laws that say something is shall be funded by this formula or by this calculation or just this many dollars in each of the following years. So we end up with a fair number of programs, including many things that our counties and our local governments really care about, are funded each year according to a formula that's written in law and typically has some sort of year-to-year mechanism for you grow by the cost of living, by the, the, the consumer price index, or by some other measure over time so that you know, the funding in 2015 is this much more than it was in 14 and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. So that's a really common facet of a Maryland state budget is a lot of things are by formula. Our school funding is that way. That's what the whole Kerwin debate was about, was changing all those school funding formulas. But lots of other things we care about, including, and the, mo- the issue of the moment was funding for county health departments. So that's how we do business in Maryland. It's a really common thing. The legislature does mandated funding by formula. The governor has to do that when he submits a budget. And then if if he wants to get around the edges of that, it has to be done through a bill, like a budget reconciliation bill. So does that sort of set the stage for all this reasonably? Yeah, I think that's a great way to, to sort of lay this out. We do have the quirky process in Maryland when it comes to the state budget. And Michael, you're talking here about health departments, and I mentioned it's an important bill to make go. And this is all going back to 2008 or so, right, when right. we had a lot of economic hardship in Maryland and the General Assembly had to take some actions. What happened back then and what are we trying to do to fix it? So it's it's Basically, it's a tough time to be in government when the economy falls apart. Uh, Your residents look to the government for help. More people show up on the rolls for a program like Medicaid. Uh, More people are showing up at places like local health departments, at your local clinics and other things like that. So, you know, the business of government sometimes booms a little bit right when revenues start to fall apart. The sales tax disappears and people lose their job and they, 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 you know, suddenly the income taxes is weaker. So it's, it's a tough circumstance. And that's exactly what happened. The, we, we now all seem to call this the great recession in 2008, there's a stock market collapse. This is all mostly driven by underlying weakness and then collapse in the real estate market. So mm-hmm. lots of people were buying homes with money they didn't have and suddenly lots of mortgages default and lots of people lose their shirt in the stock market. Bear Stearns disappears, Lehman Brothers disappears, all this stuff is going on and Maryland's state budget falls apart like just about every public entity does. Um, The state leaders had to make tough decisions in the summer of 2009, then Governor O'Malley went to the Board of Public Works and said, I need to make some emergency budget cuts. And boom, just like that, uh, we at the county level lost most of our highway user revenues, the share of gas taxes that go to help local roads and bridges. But some other issues that weren't quite as many dollars but were really devastating included cuts to local health departments. Um, I, I think the number went from about 68 or 69 million to suddenly down to 37 million. 
And mm-hmm. so if you were running a health department, suddenly the, the mm-hmm. state funds that are there, you know, more or less meant to just like keep the lights on, you know, you're going to get a grant program to serve these people and you have some other things to, to do particular functions, but just to keep the health office open, state funds are supposed to be there for that. And it was one of those things where I don't think, I don't think Governor O'Malley had it out for public health workers. It was just, we have to balance the budget. We're going to have to cut back on a lot of things. That, that sounds okay, right? Because you just figure, okay, when things get better, we're going to get back on track. We'll get the money that we lost, and then we'll, we'll just be sailing again and, and back on track with our local health funding, right? And, and under some circumstances, that's how things can happen. But right. this is where this concept of rebasing appears. So a lot of state formulas are written to basically say, Next year's funding will be equal to this year's funding plus some calculated increment. Now, what happens if in the middle of the year you have an emergency and you cut local health department funding from 68 million to 37 million, basically with a stroke of a pen and the vote, the the three member voting body, the Board of Public Works? Suddenly, you've slashed that budget. The following year, you come to the General Assembly and propose, here's my budget for next year. And now you have a tough budget year still, a budget reconciliation bill that says we need to round off the edges on a bunch of these different things to make the budget plan work. And one of the elements was that we're going to basically take those mid-year cuts from the summer of 2009 And we're going to just embed those in and make that the new base for the local health department funding formula. So we'll leave the formula there. But when we get to the FY11 funds and the FY12 funds, we're going to build up from that lower base. So rather than a base of about 70 million, we're going to have a base of 37 million and just grow our little population and cost of living increment from there. Right. So it's a so huge step backwards, yeah. right? I mean, it goes yeah, against I mean, the intent of the formulas. Right. And and like nobody, I, I know for sure. I mean, I was there. I watched it happen. It's not like the members of the fiscal committees in the legislature had this big contemplation and said, you know what? One of the things that we really don't care about is public health. Mm-hmm. So let's let's choose that as a loser. It was just, listen, we need to balance the state budget, and here's the proposed plan to do it. We're going to continue cuts forward that we made last year under these tough circumstances. Um, a lot of people just sort of held their nose and said, well, we have to have a plan. We need to balance the budget. That's Constitution says so. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the whole idea of rebasing is taking what might have been temporary and instead sort of rewinding everything to that level. So that's what happened with state funding for local health departments. And believe it or not, that was two, you know, that was the the session, the 2010 legislative session. And here we are 11 years later, and we're still talking about those cuts that were made in the summer of 09, reaffirmed and rebased in the session of 2010. And we still haven't caught up just in flat dollars, not even to get into like 
buying power. We haven't right. caught up in flat dollars to where we were back in like 2008. It's hard to believe. And what we ask of local health departments, the number of diseases that we ask them to track them. We've been through the, the swine flu. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, we've, we've obviously, in the last year or so, we've been through the mm-hmm. most challenging public health, health crisis of our lifetime. Um, and all of this has been done on basically a shoestring budget because times were tough in 2010. And rather than say, we'll cut it for two years and let it bounce back, we said we're going to cut it and we're going to have it rebased. Right. And so the ask now is to sort of fix that, right? I mean, as you said, it's kind of crazy to think that we're not even back in real dollars to where we were so long ago. It seems like oh, it's a whole new world, right? And so we need to make some progress here. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the bill that we've got before the General Assembly this year actually doesn't even get us all the way back. It's just steps in the right direction. So it's a little extra funding in the budget they'll be debating a year from now. And then the year after that, one more step forward. So, I mean, we're, we're realists, okay? We, we, right. we assembled this bill working with our health officers, but also recognizing that they probably don't have the capacity to just take the general funds and find an extra $40 million, which is probably what ought to be done. So if we can find a few million next year and, and $10 million the following year, that points us in a better direction. Um, yeah, there's other stuff in the bill about trying to make sure that what the money gets spent on is okay. I mean, all we talked about this before. Technology gets ahead of the law. Right. So you've got health officers who are who are doing things like, oh, we're going to go test the water at a wastewater treatment plant to see if we can detect signs of community spread of COVID. Well. Where exactly in the law does it say that that's one of the things you can spend your health funding on? Not, mm-hmm. I mean, you have to be like a little creative to say, well, this is about communicable diseases and that's one of the things and so forth. So, I mean, we, we tried to expand that language in this bill to make, you know, to make our health officers comfortable that you're doing the right thing. You're doing what we want you to be doing. And the law is going to be crystal clear uh, on that. And then, I don't know, we talked back in the summertime about faxes right about our our the it systems serving our public health professionals are just out of date and the i think it was the prince george's health officer talking about having one person writing all these things down on a sheet of paper and then it got scanned and then sent and then somebody had to take the pieces of paper out of a box and put them into the manila folders so that medical files were being kept but you can't analyze that data it's all you know, sitting in, in, you know, images rather than cells in a spreadsheet that's manipulable and translatable and so forth. You just, you know, we, we owe them better than that. So we want to take a look at what it would take to fix those problems too. So a few pieces of this, health officers deserve it. And I think the committee was receptive to the bill, but a lot of it traces back to this quirky issue in Maryland budgeting of we do a lot of stuff by formulas. And if you're not careful, you can make a huge decades-long decision with just a stroke of a pen saying, we're we're just going to go ahead and rebase that formula. Big deal. Right. So hopefully we can take meaningful steps to get us back on track. And, you know, this is another, you know, you you mentioned before there are a lot of times where we see – 
meaningful programs to counties that face rebasing. And in the governor's proposed BRFA, the bill that accompanies the budget to make it work, right, to balance it, we need to, we right. need to trim some things here and there. And we've seen this before, but in this year's proposed BRFA, there is a proposal to rebase community college funding, Michael. And this, again, goes back many years to the to John Cade formula. That's the formula that the state came up with many years ago. And basically the idea is that funding for community colleges should be split into equal thirds between the state, local governments, and then of course student tuition and fees. But we know that over the years, the state's Cade funding goal has never been met. And the, the goal again is for the state to provide 29%. And they were supposed to do that by 2012, Michael, but they've sure. never gotten there and they've delayed it many, many times. But in this BRFA, the idea would be, okay, we're not gonna do the Cade formula anymore. We're going to limit future growth in community college funding to growth in the state's general fund. And right. that would have a drastic impact. So that's, I think, another example of rebasing uh, to say we're going to do this year's budget plus growth in general fund. That's going to be how we move forward with community college funding. We saw this last year. And, you know, the Department of Legislative Services thought this would be about one hundred and twenty one million dollar cut. Uh, over the next five years. So it's real money. It's a big deal, of course, for our community colleges. We've successfully resisted this before with them at the table as we are partners with our community colleges. But, you know, I think this is just another example of you can really take a huge hit on a program, especially stuff like this, public health and community colleges. These are so important. If somebody's not paying attention and something like this got passed, I mean, I just said $120 million over the next few years. So it's a big right. deal and it's something that people need to be aware of. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, without, I, I don't think we want to come down and say, you know, try and cast anyone here as, as a villain. I, I think this is sort of the natural tension in the way Maryland does budgeting because we have this unusual system this executive-driven budget process that, that we're going to round off some of the edges in a couple of years once the, the, the budget, the ballot question that passed this past November takes effect. Maybe things mm -hmm. will change a bit, but as a practical matter, you end up with the legislature dictates an awful lot of what the governor must do in each year's budget. And every governor dislikes being told what to do. Right. Sure. Budgets are, are the way you express your priorities. And if you sit down to the budget and I mean, we hear this every year in the governor's budget presentation. Governor Hogan is very uh, aggressive in saying what it's like 86 cents out of every dollar in my budget is mandated and it's all right. mandated spending. And that that to some degree, it sounds like it's a it's a partisan comment about, you know, the Democrats do this and I would rather do that. But it's really a structure of government thing in Maryland that that's the nature, that's what the legislature can do mm -hmm. to affect their priorities. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't think it's it's as as clean as one side is right and one side is wrong. Uh, when when the governor puts in a reconciliation bill saying. It's absurd that we have this lofty formula that for years upon years, we keep having to tinker with it every year. And we're, okay, we'll, we'll delay it for a year. We'll delay it for two years or notwithstanding the formula, we're going to fund this many dollars. Right. With, with community colleges in particular, 
this isn't like a one year hiccup. It's just it's been practically a decade mm-hmm. of you know kicking the can in various degrees. So the idea of let's rebase it and make it a, make it fully affordable, um, it's it's not an absurd idea, and we haven't we haven't been able to actually put our put our money where our mouth is, maybe except for one year in this whole last decade. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and it's certainly not casting blame. And as you mentioned, there's always going to be this tension here because of the way we do budgets in Maryland. But it's certainly it's a big number. And the idea that, OK, yeah, we should probably look at this and, and just rebase it so that we don't have to keep doing this every single year makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, if you're sitting in the chair of a county commissioner or council member or executive and you know that if the state shows up and says, well, we were going to get 120 million more, but now we're going to rebase. The community colleges are going to come to the counties or they're going to have to raise tuition to make up for that loss. So it's a big impact. And again, not blaming anybody. There's certainly always provisions in the BRFA that, you know, that are proposed and you got to balance the budget. But that that's, I think, the, the worry with our community colleges and with the county governments and of course with students, nobody wants to raise tuition and they don't want to have to come to counties for more money because quite frankly, we've done better with our obligation than the state has over the years. So just an interesting policy issue. It it is. And it's, it's timely. I I know, you know, you're, you're hunkered down getting ready for it, but we're only, I don't know, a week or week and a half away from the big budget hearing day. I mean, they're going agency by agency, but it all comes to a head on the day where this big budget reconciliation bill gets heard in the House and the Senate. The, mm-hmm. you know, the budget committees sort of hunker down for a long day of testimony on all the different things that are in the reconciliation bill and that have been brought up by their staff over you know weeks and weeks of, of budget hearings. So things are pointed in that direction. I guess that's in early March. Um, you know, the community college piece is one element that, that we'll have something to say about. I think, you know, Mako usually comes to the, comes to the table and talks about multiple things. I, I expect we'll do that to this year again. Right? That's the plan for sure. And of course, the House is going to move the budget this year. So they'll they'll complete their work first and then send it over to the Senate. But Michael, I think we can leave it there for tonight. We talked Kerwin. We talked wonky budget stuff. I mean, seems like we're, we're right back where we where we were a year ago or so, even, you know, back a few years, this seemed to be the <laughs> every single episode we could not talk about Kerwin. So it's got to feel a little good for you to get back into Kerwin. Seems like old times. I like it. All right. So we'll leave it there for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. Of course, you can follow along on social media. Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog will link some really good blog articles that had a connection to what we were talking about today there. But until next week, for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon.